Hi, I'm Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. Your podcast for everything to do with psychology, society and technology. As robots continue to fulfill a number of jobs that humans once were responsible for, it seems that love and compassion could be the next task on the list. From classic sci-fi movies such as Blade Runner to more modern day flicks such as like X Machina or Her, lifelike robots and AI might be considered a solution to the growing sense of loneliness that many feel in this modern world. However, what does this mean for society, our psychology and even the law surrounding robot relationships? To get a better understanding of how this new technology could impact our psychology and our society, I'm joined by a neuroscientist researching human sexual behavior, addiction, and the physiology of sexual response. She is also the founder of Libros, an independent research institute. Dr. Nicole Prosse. And for our Weird Wide Web piece, we have a story of students suffering from separation anxiety when their phones are taken away from them. Where are you in the world today? Uh, I'm in Los Angeles, hanging out in the lab. You're based there, yeah? Yes. Are you from there originally, or is that somewhere you chose to move to? I've lived all over the U.S. I hope this is my stopping spot. <laughs> I've been here five years now. So. What do you like about it? What, what makes you want to stay there? Uh, I am an outdoors person, so I love that I can be outside all year round i am laughing because they just started vacuuming in the hallway yeah i know i heard that immediately i was <laughs> i was like what is that i assume they'll be but. done quickly <laughs> well i'll ask if they're uh, still messing around but yeah no i'm definitely hoping this is the last spot because i love to be outside i'm a big distance runner and um hiker and they've got all that here all year round so i dig it nice very nice yeah i, I do like la i gotta admit i'm coming from the uk i'm very accustomed to places where I can walk around and I think that's probably the biggest deterrent for me <laughs> where it's just like if I need a car to get around then it's like uh, I don't know if I can live there <laughs> but I was gonna say when we were, obviously when we we're organizing this podcast you were in Africa how did that go what were you doing out there oh um that was interesting so I was consulting for the World Health Organization and they're trying to create a new measure uh, to be used internationally to measure sexual health and one of the things they've just been trying to do is to get away from a model of uh, sexual health as the absence of disease, uh, but to acknowledge that there's actual pleasure <laughs> in sexual interaction. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of my my bag. That's what I do is talk about the health benefits of sex. And so they brought me over to, in part, help get you know something into this measure that reasonably assesses uh, sexual pleasure in a way that can be recognized across the world. So, you know, most cultures don't care about orgasm like we do in the U.S. and in Europe. So, you know, how can you talk about that in a place where that's not even on the table? <laughs> how do you ask about that? So it was an interesting meeting and they had people from all over the world there trying to figure out how to measure this better, measure sexual health in a robust way. And then I took a bit of travel time because I hadn't been to Africa before. What was it like speaking to people that perhaps hadn't considered this before or maybe considered it a taboo subject and were perhaps uncomfortable? Were they uncomfortable talking about it or was this just something completely new to them? The particular section of the World Health Organization was uh, reproductive health section. So these folks are used to talking about issues like abortion and access to birth control, which are already fairly controversial rights issues across the world, even in developed countries. So even you know those folks who are in from kind of low and middle income countries, um, which they call limics there, 
or LMICs, you know, they have the prohibitions that they have weren't things that generally were touching on this. So for example, it's like, you know, there are countries where you can't ask about incidents of anal sex because it's illegal there. And so, you know, there are participants, it's not the same to ask them about anal sex as it is to yeah. say in the U.S. And so we weren't really pushing those boundaries. And so it was more like, you know, if we ask someone, how many times have you had a satisfying sexual interaction in the last month? Is that going to be similar enough to get at what we hope people are reporting in Somalia and in Malaysia and in the U.S.? <laughs> and, and those I don't think were terribly controversial in so far as most people who are at this kind of reproductive section are on board with finding sex is not merely reproductive. You know, that that kind of a group is beyond that discussion. Good. A safe kind of environment to discuss these topics. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You said it was your first time in Africa, right? Yeah. What was your experience like there? Because I've never been, but it's a part of the world that I'd love to check out. My dad used to live in Zimbabwe and he tells me incredible stories of it. Yeah, that's exactly. I travel a lot with work, but it's often to EU or westernized country. So I was excited to see something different. And because I love distance running, you know, I was trying to go to Eton to their high altitude training camp uh, that Lorna Kiplagat has there. Uh, but freaking Mo Farah <laughs> was at the camp <laughs> the week I was there. So his entourage took up the entire camp and I didn't get to visit. So I'll have to go back. But uh, I went ahead and did the touristy thing and went on a safari. But even that was interesting, you know, because I got up to go run in the morning and they had uh, men from the Maasai guarding the camp. And I assume guarding was just, you know, kind of a privacy thing. And the guard stops me and says, where are you going? It's like, I'm going for a run. So the, there's a game preserve. You're not going for a run. <laughs> Get back in the fence. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the animals, of course, are fascinating and incredible and, uh, it's a hell of a trip to get out there. So I'm glad I did it in a lifetime. But uh, it's also very restrictive. You know, at night, you really can't leave a very small area to be protected. And it's good to remember yeah. that you can't just go wandering around everywhere and that <laughs> there's the real world out there. I can imagine if you ran in a place like that, you might end up running faster than you expect away from some. some yeah, you probably wouldn't make it too far. Yeah. And then it's like the villages in that area too were polygynous. And uh, so that was fun talking to those guys and teasing them about how many wives they did or didn't have and why, why she was just a girlfriend and how many, uh, you know, how much more they'd have to add to their goats before they could get her as a wife. And, <laughs> Like I've not had those conversations before, but they were uh, they were good to have, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to get started, and I think the best way to get started would be if you were able to introduce yourself, your name, and what you do for our listeners in this space of. Well, you've already touched upon it a bit, but if you just want to go into further detail, really. I'm Dr. Nicole Prousey, and I'm a sexual psychophysiologist, which means I study the connection between the brain and the genitals, trying to understand when people say they're having a particular sexual experience, how that manifests in their body and brain. Awesome. That's, that's very to the point. I don't think I've ever had a guest that, that's been so specific. Usually they trail on for a couple of minutes and, go, and then I do this and I do it, but you went straight <laughs> to it. I like that though. I do like that. You oh. just like no messing around. Yeah. No, no, I like that. That's good. That's good. Straight to the point. Yeah, I'm really super excited to have this conversation because initially I got the idea of this topic because I'm part of like a podcast group uh, on Facebook and I was just thinking like, uh, what ideas can I come up with for, for future episodes in season two? And someone suggested about like uh, robots as companions, uh, either romantically or sexually, and how this is going to change our society. And immediately I was like, wow, this is 
This is something that I think I've heard of before because I remember hearing a story in Houston about Houston stopping the opening of a robot brothel. And to be honest, that doesn't surprise me. If anything, I was surprised that they even thought Tried. they'd open up in Texas <laughs> at all. Yeah, like I was like, wow, that's, that takes guts. But um, this is, I've also checked out like some Vice documentaries. I know they've got some, some on this subject. And of course, there's other areas of the world like Asia where this like robot brothels aren't really like that uncommon or it seems. No, certainly not like Texas. But I'd be really interested to know, do you think that these types of brothels will become increasingly common and maybe even one day open up in Texas? <laughs> I don't know what their likelihood is in Texas having grown up there. It seems like a tough market indeed, but robots in general kind of strike me as, uh, you know, on the one hand, very much in their infancy. So we may see this shift as the technology improves, but they're kind of like the vibrators, you know, they're a new sexual option and something that might be adopted by a certain segment of the population or at some particular level, but it's going to be those that, you know, are affordable that people can consume privately, I think, that are more likely to be adopted or to change. The idea of going to brothels, I think, is going to continue to be a bridge too far for a majority of folks. So I have a hard time imagining them being extremely popular in the long term, uh, potentially short term. What do you think, like, the, the psychology is behind people wanting this rather than human beings? Like, for example, why would someone choose to go for this over the interactions that we currently have with other human beings? There are a number of reasons people choose to widen their sexual repertoire. And the best predictor of that in general is having a high sex drive. <laughs> so people, for example, who are more likely to use sex toys at all, um, or vibrators in particular, or to view pornography, all have a higher sex drive and are higher sensation seeking in terms of personality. So my expectation is that would be kind of the same for the robots. That is, by and large, they are going to be experimented with by people who like to experiment sexually because they have lots of sexual interests and sexual tastes. And there will probably be some as well there for folks who can't access partners other ways. So, for example, you know, people who may have access issues through disability or through the uh, society's perception of their disability. So, you know, there may be some provision there, but I think probably the largest consumers are likely to be the largest consumers of other sex devices. That is just people who have a high sex drive and are really sensation seeking folks. Yeah. I was going to say, you mentioned, you kind of said like uh, about uh, greater access for those that people are, how, what, do, what were your words exactly then you said, you said about like, um, for people that perceive them in society, or I, I apologize. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to like quote you and say you just said yeah, this, yeah. and then you're like, mm, that's not exactly what I said. <laughs> you mentioned about like uh, it being more accessible for certain people in society, which perhaps don't have an outlet for their sexual desires. Is that is that a fair um, representation of what you just said? Exactly. So some folks that for actual physiological reasons may have difficulty having intercourse in the way that people traditionally think about being sexual with another partner, uh, you know, so it could be truly a disability issue. But then we also have a number of cases where there are groups that say, you know, we're perceived as being asexual and we're not like we have sexual needs, but it's very difficult for those folks to get partners. So that could be older adults. It could be developmentally disabled who still want to have sexual interactions, but 
you know, find it difficult to convince people that they're able to consent and have interests that are valid. So I don't know that this is a, a solution or something I would recommend per se, but it certainly could be an access for them to have interactions. We have a show in the UK and I'm not particularly proud of it, but um, <laughs> it seems to be quite popular. And I think it humanizes people with disabilities to some extent, but I've never really watched it. It's called The Undateables. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's one of those shows that I'm like, I don't know how this survives, but I think it must humanize them in a way that makes the show acceptable. But essentially, it is people that struggle to find partners because of some kind of disability. So that comes to mind when I think of this. But also what I was thinking about is less the kind of physical disabilities and even it's more personality traits because I'm not sure how familiar you are with the term incel. Yes. You probably know of it given your, your background. But I would be really interested to know what you think robots as sexual or romantic partners, how they will impact like members of the incel community and the incel community in general. Incels are interesting because their self-perception of who they are is, I think, quite different from researchers' perception. So there hasn't been a ton of research done that, on that group, but there has been some. And I think from a scientific perspective, we see them as kind of hyper-masculinized, really believing in old values of sexuality and dominance. And I think they see themselves as just persecuted victims of society. Yeah. So we can imagine why they would have a hard time gaining partners. You know, that is, they think they're fine how they are. They need not to change, but to stay exactly who they are. And so that is going to make it difficult for them to gain a sexual partner. And I can imagine from that perspective, you know, these other aspects whether it's toys or robots, you know, might be something that would give them access to sexual pleasure. But I also don't think they would accept that. You know, my uh, suspicion is a robot or a sex toy is something also that would be against their kind of masculine ideal. That is, we shouldn't have to do this. You know, this is, we're owed more than this. Mm. Uh, so I don't know if they would consume in private. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the only way that community might consume them more or might interact more with robots. I would be very surprised, though, if it ever became a public outlet for them that they would advocate for such a thing, because it seems to be kind of against their masculine ideal that they deserve live women. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it's kind of like an admission or an acceptance of defeat, I suppose, if they go down that option. It's almost like, well, they can't get the real thing, so they just have to accept or go for this. This is the next best option. Yeah, they're not accepting it now. Why would that change? Yeah. So, <laughs> don't know. Just like um, robots aside and just on the subject of incels, what do you think is the best solution for like uh, reducing this? Because it seems like, obviously, it's a, a group in society which has a history to some extent of somewhat violent outbursts. Mm -hmm. I think there was the a, ta a terrorist attack in Toronto or a mass shooting that was related to it. And there's also been one in California, I believe. Yes. There definitely are examples of where members of this community have taken their rage and put it into like some very violent actions. Mm -hmm. So obviously society would probably be a safer place if these folks could find a way of integrating society and just having normal sex lives. What do you think is the answer for reducing the number of members in this community? I wonder when I read about that community if there are social skills trainings that might be useful, and I know that's going to sound <laughs> terrible to, the, to that group, but what social skills training are often used with folks who struggle to kind of interact in a way that 
uh, is acceptable to society. So I like to use the example, um, you know, when you're out and about and you're talking to someone and you realize like something's off, something's weird, uh, and maybe they have schizophrenia, for example. And people with schizophrenia often have kind of awkward social interactions with people. And so the question is, what makes that interaction awkward? And that could be any number of things. For example, they don't do normal turn-taking in conversation. Yeah. Um, or they tend to disclose at a rate that's inappropriately high. So they give you lots of personal details that you shouldn't talk about with somebody in a coffee shop you just met, for example. And so social skills trainings work uh, primarily with folks like that who just really need some kind of basic guides and rules that they wouldn't acquire without explicit instruction and practice. And I wonder if those kind of things could be helpful for an incel community that often seem to have difficulties interacting with folks who they want to date. You know, that's make them attractive. Yeah. <laughs> make them uh, kind of learn if you want, you know, this in your life and that's the goal. You know, what? why would you want to have social skills? What are social skills good for? You know, and so maybe there's initially you have to motivate them a bit more as to why that could be useful for them or could ultimately get them what they want and learn to value the perspective of others and how to interact with people kind of in a more natural way. Just my guess, but it seems like a, so, some things that we already have available in therapies might be something that would be helpful for that community too. That makes sense. On previous podcasts, it's come up a couple of times about how you can learn skills and what the future of training is. It has become increasingly clear to me that virtual reality is a, a key component of that. And when I was speaking on a previous podcast, we did discuss the potential of people learning social skills through virtual reality. And on the mo one of our most recent podcasts, mm -hmm. we discussed soft skills and hard skills. And the neuroscientist that I spoke to, he said that virtual reality is one of the best options for that. So I'm hoping that they're like if they don't go to train or therapy or for whatever reason they don't get the help they need from a professional perhaps they can at least put on a headset and maybe learn these skills which you speak of rather than robots anyway <laughs> yeah that sounds like a better application of robots or ai yeah. <laughs> but going back to like robots for sexual companionship how do you think that that could stand to impact the structure and social dynamics of society? I think there are some things that robots will not be able to replace about an actual partner. So, for example, there have been a series of studies looking at the impact of touch and brain responsiveness. So if I'm, for example, stroking your forearm or stroking your thigh, the brain realizes when it's being touched by a human hand versus a gloved hand versus a brush. <laughs> so if uh, presumably robots won't be so good, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future to be indistinguishable from a human, and there are a number of reasons why I could imagine that being the case, then touch from a robot is always going to be different, neuroscience speaking, uh, than touch from an actual human being. And so it doesn't really have the possibility of being completely replaced, you know, of having all those same, same kind of sensations. And there's also the kind of the experience of sexual desire comes from being desired. And that's knowing that another person wants you and uh, wants to interact with you sexually, which is also something that's going to be lacking kind of in uh, robotic partners. So I don't have a concern that these are going to replace partners for 
for the general population, obviously there will be cases where that occurs, but I think and on average, I'm not concerned about that. My suspicion is they're going to look very much like vibrators down the road. That is for folks who can afford the nicer models, you know, they'll have mm -hmm. fun things they can experiment with and some will do it with partners and some will do it solo and some will be hiding it because they're too embarrassed, uh, <laughs> just like we do with sex toys now. Uh, that's my impression of how they'll probably be integrated. Uh, no, it's interesting. That does make sense. I did find in my research, though, when I have when I looked up this subject beforehand or saw some in some videos, there are some groups that have concerns that prevalence of sex robots within society, I think certainly on the, the female side, is going to distort men's perceptions of women. Do you have any concerns around this so that there's going to be any kind of spike in negative expectations of women or is there going to be any anything that society should fear in that sense? We've had similar concerns with pornography with respect to consent issues. So for example, you know, pornography often doesn't explicitly portray consent. They tend to portray it implicitly. You know, that is, they they don't formally say, would you like to have sex with me now? And the woman says, yes, I would. Sexy. Yeah, exactly. So they, the implicit consent is something like in pornography, she would raise her hips or open her legs, um, kind of showing, showing desire for sexual activity. And, uh, you know, so with robots, this is, again, going to be raised, I think. That is, are people going to become less able to recognize consent cues? Um, and then will that cause them to engage in unconsensual activity? And, you know, as with pornography, we see that those two things are related in so far as people who, who, for example, believe the myth, you know, if I buy a woman dinner, she owes me. You know, she better give me something. Uh, so that kind of myth is more likely to be believed by people who watch non-consensual pornography. And so the same will probably be true with the robot use. That is, you know, people who engage in <laughs> non-consensual activity with robots, you know, to the extent you can. That is uh, kind of being being rapey with the robot, so to speak. Um, you know, are probably those same folks who would do it in real life. But whether the robots are going to cause an increase in consent problems is really an open question that I don't think we have good evidence for. And what do you think would be the process to develop good evidence for that? Like, how would we be able to understand if this is going to, like, give them an outlet so that they just don't do this on humans versus, like, them normalizing this and then taking it elsewhere? The way to study that is we have to think about kind of internal and external validity. So in internal validity, that's doing like a laboratory study where you would have someone come in and interact with a robot who either portrays consent cues or doesn't portray consent cues. And then you can test them in some of our typical uh, setups where, for example, we have them go through scenarios and see how they think they would interact and report to us. Um, or we can look at how aroused they become to uh, non-consensual sex films in the laboratory after after you know interacting with a non-consenting or a consenting robot those are ways to have good internal validity on studies but then the question is no matter what we observe in the lab will that impact their real world behavior and that's the external validity issue so even if we see that people appear to be more aroused by non-consensual sex after interacting with a non-consenting robot <laughs> then does that actually mean they're going to treat their partners more poorly in real life or be more coercive sexually in real life? So those are the kind of the two things or pieces of evidence we would need to know whether robots are really causing uh, potential problems with consent. 
Yeah, I can see the difficulty there. It was interesting because in the, I think it was the Vice documentary I saw, they did say there was um, a brothel in Spain that had like uh, robots. And they said that that was a, a line they don't cross. Like people have come to them and said they want to act out their rape fantasies with these robots. And they're like, no, you, you can't do that here. But I'd be really interested to hear more on your thoughts on pornography. So only because beforehand on one of our early episodes we did an episode on whether or not porn is addictive or not and we had one advocate saying that um it definitely is and they were like a a therapist that helps with porn addiction and then we had a gender studies uh, professor that was saying that it's it's blown out proportion and that porn addiction is a myth which is pushed by therapies and like counselors that want to make lots of money oh boy i suppose the answers in that podcast were somewhat inconclusive just because it was a real clash of different opinions (laughs) but as someone that kind of like studies this uh, to some extent Mm -hmm. i'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on this do you think that society currently has somewhat of an unhealthy or healthy relationship with porn and is there something that we should be concerned about in that I think it's clear that some people use porn more than they intend to, um, but the question is, why is that and what should we do about it? So, uh, for example, if people are watching porn and feeling really upset about it because they were raised in a very conservative household that told them they should never watch and that watching pornography is equivalent to abusing women, uh, then of course they're going to feel terrible about their use, but that's not a disease. You know, that's a social issue and we may need to do psychoeducation in that piece to help someone and not necessarily reduce their porn viewing. Maybe they're not viewing all that much. Now, the addiction models, as you asked specifically about that, you know, there are lots of uh, disease models of pornography viewing or addiction is just one. And that, to me, has been ruled out. We have lots of studies now that are not consistent with an addiction model. Uh, for viewing pornography. So I would say it's not addictive, but it still could be other stuff. (laughs) So the kind of other prominent ideas uh, is that pornography viewing might be compulsive or it could be impulsive. And those are uh, very distinct, different types of problems. And depending which one it is, you would treat it differently. So I think the most popular right now is thinking about it as a compulsivity problem. Um, So if you've ever heard of obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD, it would be kind of like that. That is um, a compulsivity issue is something where you engage in a behavior to reduce a negative feeling, uh, where impulsivity is more you do something because it's exciting and fun to have a pleasant feeling. So in a compulsivity disorder, you might masturbate to porn because you had a hard day at work and you don't really have other good coping mechanisms, but, you know, masturbating helps you out. And there's that debate like, okay, well, <laughs> that's probably not a bad thing. You know, is, is it wrong to use sex to feel better? I don't think so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at what point do you say, okay, but that's too much or, okay, but, but now, you know, the porn isn't really working for you anymore. The masturbation isn't as effective as going to exercise could be. And so maybe you would benefit not because porn is bad, uh, but just because there are things that are more effective or that will cause you less shame. And so that's a lot of the work we're doing now is to try and understand, you know, for people who are distressed about their porn viewing, really trying to understand where does the distress come from and is there something we can do then to help intervene. And right now, uh, kind of best evidence we have there therapies um, called acceptance and commitment therapies or ACT therapies that have been shown to reduce uh, reduce porn viewing, but that's not their uh, ultimate goal. 
which is interesting. So a lot of those addiction programs try to eliminate porn viewing. And I don't see any need for that. Uh, the ACT models are more about reducing distress around porn viewing. And uh, often people tend to view less as a part of that, but that's not necessarily a goal to be abstinent from porn. And just just like sexual abstinence programs, I think you know there's probably good reasons for those working better. So currently there are no uh, randomized controlled trials showing that sex addiction treatments work. And that's important, you know, if you're someone who is struggling with that and curious what you might do to help yourself, I would say addiction models are not good treatments. But some of these others could be, especially acceptance and commitment therapy. That that actually has data that it's been helpful for people. That was an incredibly informative answer. I should have just had you on that podcast. <laughs> I mean, I like the guests. I had, I had good guests and it, was, it made for an interesting podcast, but that would have just cleared up and gone straight to the point. That's good, though. That's good. Um, I have one more question for you, and it's I kind of wanted to finish with a somewhat romantic question. <laughs> I want to put it to you. Do you think that marriage between a, a human and a robot will ever be normalized, or there's any chance that like uh, a robot will encapsulate, I suppose, the appearance and attitude of a human being so closely that it might just become normalized to just design your own wife or husband or something? I would be very surprised if marriage between a human and robot becomes normalized in our lifetime. In part, I think, as optimistic as we are and as much progress as we're making in some artificial intelligence, that those communications, while people experience empathy and emotions and are even using some robotic therapies these days, they're not human. And they're very clearly not human. They're not uh, interacting at the level that people can generally be deceived to think that they're interacting with a person. So to the extent that this is you know, a non-human, I think robots are likely to be viewed like other fetishes. That is, you know, if you need a shoe present or being touched by your left hand every time you have an orgasm, you know, it, it might work for, for getting you to climax, but it could impair other kind of interactions with people when you're trying to be intimate with a partner, you know, if you always have to have a shoe involved. So, you know, it's not that there's anything wrong with the shoe per se, uh, and you can certainly make that happen just like with the robots, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with interacting sexually with a robot, but is it really going to kind of have all of those other features of human interaction that we can see people marrying them and having kind of full relationships in the way we expect of our you know, marital partners? I would be very surprised if that happened in our lifetime or was accepted in our lifetime. Out of curiosity, that example you gave with the shoe touching your left hand, is that something you just pulled out the air or is that something which uh, sprung to mind from like an interaction you've had with the client or someone in the past? <laughs> Do they ever get that bizarre? <laughs> no, it's just a good example. That's not that bizarre, actually, <laughs> in, in my experience with uh, hearing reports. It's more just a good example of a fetish. I think most people have heard of foot fetishists or shoe fetishists. And that's often kind of where we draw the line in terms of uh, disorder or dysfunction, even though this is debated. That is, you know, if you need an inanimate object present to have a full sexual experience, is that a disorder or not? And as you might imagine, there are tremendous debates about that, yeah. um, whether we should pathologize people who have that experience. And the debates continue, so I'm not going to pretend to resolve it here. But that is currently where the line is drawn. That is, if you require it to be present 
to have a sexual experience, then many people would define that as fetishistic and being a problem. Interesting. And I don't know if you can share with us this kind of uh, these thoughts, but what is the most interesting like fetish that you've come across in your in your time in this work? <laughs> like what's one which you're like, really that? Wow. That's specific. Is there anything you can share with us? I mean, the so the scatological are always interesting to me. Um, I'm always curious to understand more. So those are so scatological are poop <laughs> fetishes. And yeah. And so on the one hand, there's some research looking at sexual arousal and disgust. And when we become sexually aroused, our disgust tolerance goes up quite a lot, um, which is probably adaptive, you know, because when you're interacting sexually, you know, there can be all kinds of fluids involved and saliva and the potential of blood or menses. Like there's so much that you need to be able to tolerate to interact sexually with another human being. Mm. And so it makes sense that people, you know, normally might find that disgusting, but then wouldn't in a sexual context. And I've, you know, read about, oh, some people use it more as like a dominance uh, kind of play than being aroused by the poop per se. And I just, it's a tough one. Um, I'm always <laughs> interested to try and understand the psychology behind it. But that, that one is, um, <laughs> more research is needed. How about that? <laughs> You have a very interesting job. I think every day must be uh, very exciting in your line of work because this is this this podcast, this episode certainly has been one of the most unconventional ones we've had. I think. I mean, it's always we always talk about interesting topics. Well, in my opinion, I always enjoy them, but this is definitely something which is like a, a bit out of the box for for us normally. But I like it. This has been fun. <laughs> good. It's good to challenge ourselves. I think and try and understand when we see things that make us uncomfortable. Not what's wrong with them but why do we feel uncomfortable so it's a fun question yes exactly exactly so nicole if people do want to follow you or uh, keep up with your work what's the best way for them to to do that i do the website's easiest to find all my social so it's just librocenter.com so l-i-b-e-r-o-s center fantastic thank you so much weird wide web According to the Wall Street Journal, before class, each day, a high school teacher in Indianapolis grabs a clear plastic bag and fastens it to her waist with a ribbon. Her homemade pouch is used for phones that are either confiscated or handed over voluntarily by students who don't want to be tempted by their phones during class. She calls it the phony pack. And the magic of this makeshift vault isn't that it keeps devices out of reach, it's that it lowers students' anxiety by keeping their phones in view. Now this might sound silly, but it turns out that getting rid of phones introduces another distraction, withdrawal pangs and separation anxiety. The article claims that teachers across the country, just like this one, are testing their own methods for managing their students' phone-related angst. That's it for today's show. Thank you. It's been great having you here. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. If you like this and you want to get more, well, there's plenty more where this came from. Just go to sociable.co and you can find all our articles and podcasts, or you can subscribe to our newsletter while you're there. On the right-hand side, just scroll down, add your name and email, and we'll keep you posted with all our latest articles and podcasts. You can also follow The Sociable and keep up to date with our podcasts on YouTube or follow Brainspike back on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks and take care.